In this episode of the Root Cause Medicine Podcast, we will be discussing food sensitivities with Dr. Brandy Zachary. Some people have certain pathways based on who they are, their genetics, but the big sword in the body causing so many of the problems is inflammation and these food sensitivities, what's happening with the gut, how it communicates with the brain, inflammation is one of the key drivers. Welcome to the Root Cause Medicine Podcast. Each episode focuses on giving you the information you need to understand the root cause, symptoms, and treatments available for specific medical conditions. In each episode, we'll meet renowned medical experts, specialists, and pioneers who've influenced the way certain conditions and diseases are understood and treated. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Profasi. Dr. Brandy Zachary is a functional medicine doctor, clinic owner, practitioner, trainer, and instructor, lab analysis software developer, speaker, and award-winning author. Dr. Brandy Zachary discovered the power of functional medicine firsthand when a mystery illness left her declared permanently disabled and stuck in the hospital every three weeks, costing $720,000 every year. Unwilling to accept that diagnosis, she fought back to regain her health and then launched Body Love Cafe in 2016, an award-winning holistic health clinic with multiple practitioners serving a worldwide audience. Dr. Brandy Zachary is the lead instructor for the Functional Medicine Academy and has completed extensive postgraduate coursework. She has worked with thousands of health entrepreneurs on their branding, marketing, sales, speaking, and practice strategy. Dr. Zachary is currently working on a second book and lives with her husband and daughter in Walnut Creek, California. So thank you, Dr. Zachary, for joining us today. And in case I missed anything in your background, please just fill us in and let everybody know a little bit about your background and area of expertise. Oh, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. You know, you covered a lot. I think I would just say that one thing that maybe sets me apart in some situations is I understand what it is to be the patient. So everything I do as a practitioner and a teacher and a trainer and a writer really comes from that patient perspective because I've been there where we didn't know what was going on and you're struggling and not feeling well, or you're bounced from practitioner to practitioner and you're not getting answers. So luckily I was in a situation where I could go back to school, figure them out for myself, but not everyone is in that situation. So it's definitely part of, you know, my purpose is to make this knowledge accessible to all and really explain it in simple, easy language so we can all be informed and you know, have better quality of life and better conversations with all of our practitioners. That's great. I agree. It's so important. So many people struggling nowadays with no resolution in sight. They don't have any answers. So having that experience, I'm sure lends you an upper hand and just a better connection with your patients. So that's really great. So Dr. Zachary, let's jump right in here today. And you know, we want to talk about food sensitivities because it's so rampant in today's population. So many people develop them, have them, and don't even know that they might have them. So when you're looking at the root causes of food sensitivity with your patients, what are the common things or sources that you usually find? It's such a good question because answering that 
I think really explains why we're seeing more and more food sensitivities. And research has shown that not only are we seeing patients reporting it more, so that it's a higher uh, level of it getting reported, but they are actually increasing. So, you know, both situations, what patients experience and what is happening is increasing. So then why? Well, there's several different types of root causes that we know of, and I'm sure more to be discovered. What we've learned about the microbiome, the gut, it's like a a friendly and sometimes unfriendly forest in there, right? Lots of different animals and creatures in there. We share that space with them. We need to get along. And our gut not only has changed over the years, but we actually see with studies on migrants and immigrants that when they come to their new country, there's negative changes in their gut. So environment plays a very real impact. They had more diversity, better gut, less allergies and food sensitivities in their home country versus when they come to their new adopted country, particularly this Western diet. So environment, uh, change in our food, less exposure to food diversity, a change in our food supply, more processed food, less um, like organic is is not a term we always had to have. Everything used to be organic. It was just called farming. But now we have to differentiate. And so our farming practices have changed. There's less nutrition in our food. We also have an increased exposure into pesticides and some toxins. Not only is the load and exposure getting higher, but some of them did not even used to exist. And now we're seeing and learning the impact it has on our body. So that's sort of the environmental aspect. The other thing that's happening on the inside is that we're getting more immune activation. We're getting more negative bacteria and overgrowth that release toxins and and damage our gut. So then what's in our gut, which is normally, you know, this tube that goes in our body, we think of, you know, we put something in our mouth and it goes in our body. And that's partly true. But from top to bottom, it's still sort of this outside tube. And then it has to get across the tube. Think of it like a skin lane has to get across that tube into our bloodstream. And when it gets in our bloodstream, then it really goes everywhere, right? So things are getting in our bloodstream and becoming systemic all over our body that we used to not be exposed to in the past. And we have an increased immune activity, more autoimmune conditions, poor digestion, changes in hormones. So the list as to why gets longer and longer, but for a lot of the public, it seems baffling, especially if they start noticing their food sensitivities later, like in their thirties because they'll often say, well, I don't understand. I used to eat this all the time and I was fine. Why is it a problem now? So sometimes they just, it wasn't hitting a threshold that they registered and it just had to be layered one thing after another. There was finally a tipping point and they noticed it, but it was actually building over the time. And just, you know, I know there's so much we want to talk about, but just one quick example, I was thinking of a patient who we did an allergy test and she had so many serious allergies. And within the same breath, she said, this is impossible. I think I would know if I was allergic to this because I have no symptoms, but I do always itch. 
And I have itched my whole life to the point where when I scratch myself, I get welts. And I said, well, (laughs) itching is a sign of allergies. And, you know, why don't we just try maybe a diet without a few of these foods? And then after about four to six weeks, not only was the itching gone for the first time in their lives, but um, sleep was better, hormone changes, weight coming off, mood improved, things they weren't complaining about because they had always felt that way. So in their mind, there, was, there weren't any symptoms. So it wasn't until it was gone that they noticed. So sort of a long answer, but there's a lot going on there and a lot of really good evidence and, and more coming all the time. No, that's amazing. You had some really, really great points here. And I'm, we're going to be diving so deep into this topic today. So I'm excited for this. But as you mentioned, you know, I always like to joke, we're, we're one big walking donut from in terms of your digestive tract and, and where it spans from, you know, th- literally the mouth of the anus, it's just one big tube. And there's so much that goes on in so many different areas that influence another. And there's that famous quote of you are what you eat. But I think as you were discussing we're really, we are what we absorb and break down truly. And so if we're lacking a lot of that, as you were explaining, even food sensitivities can develop from that. So, you know, how common do you think these food sensitivities really are though in the population? As you mentioned, you have a lot of patients, but kind of, can you dive a little bit deeper into that? You know, when you're a functional medicine practitioner, which can be a lot of different licenses, MD, DC, DO, naturopath, it really describes a type of care, right? But when you're a functional medicine practitioner, it may look like everyone is coming in because you're definitely seeing a certain population, people with problems. If you take a very conservative medical agency like a Mayo Clinic, they're still going to describe it as very common. And they're going to say 3 million plus cases in the US. You start looking at other research, they're going to surmise it could be 20% of the population or more. Now, you know, you're getting into over a billion people on the planet. So it's really, really quite common. And especially as we talk a bit more about the different types, if you look at all of the types, very, very prevalent. Amazing. No, thank you for that. And and that's leading to my next question for you, which isn't there a difference between a food sensitivity and a food allergy? Can you kind of go down that line for everybody so that they understand that? Yes, this is good. And, and it also really starts to lean towards even when we talk about testing, what do you test for? So a food allergy. So the, there are two British gentlemen researchers, they classified like four classic allergies, right? The first three were all immediate response types one, two, and three. And then the fourth one was a delayed. And then each of them had a different part of the immune system they activated. A lot of times people think of just type one, which is anaphylactic response, right? Someone eats a peanut, their throat starts closing down, they need an EpiPen. Those used to be not that common. Even those types of allergies are becoming more common, but there's so many other types. And the part of the immune system that activates that system, IgE, immunoglobulin E, is also more common than people realize, even the natural health providers, because if they don't test for it, they don't see it because a lot of people can have that IgE response, but they're they're not anaphylactic. It shows up in a different way. They don't have to rush to an emergency room, but they are activating that part of the immune system. So the 
that IgE immediate response can show up anywhere from immediately after consuming a food, touching, breathing, and environmental exposure to 24 hours later. So immediate to 24 hours. These delayed responses, which use different parts of the immune system, IgG, for example, this is a different type of immunoglobulin, or the complement system, we could talk a bit about that. Those can happen anywhere from 30 minutes after eating up to four days later, sometimes even a little longer. It depends on the uniqueness of someone. So in practice, and for you know the patients that might be listening, you might go to your doc and say, I, you know, it's Thursday afternoon. I feel miserable. I feel like I'm having an allergic reaction. I'm all inflamed. My skin's itchy. I have a headache. I hate my spouse. This happens when I have an allergic reaction. But I ate perfectly today. I ate perfectly yesterday. Why is this happening? And they don't realize it's what they had for breakfast on Monday. It's a delayed response. You know, we have to have good, helpful testing. We often need um, food journaling, not that you have to do it forever, but to sort of pinpoint um, what it is that's contributing to this to now. So you mentioned there's different types of the allergic reactions, about approximately four. Do you think that they're all or are they all related to food then? Can they all be related to food in this sense? They can actually. All four can come from food. And what separates them is the length of time. So the first three immediate, the fourth is delayed and which, what is involved. The first one is that IgE response. The next three are going to be IgG or IgM. And the third one involves um, more of the, now the second one involves complement. The third one involves like this uh, antigen antibody binding. So you know, it's helpful in research to delineate that. A lot of time in practice, you don't necessarily delineate in that way. You just look at, do we have an immediate response and an IgE allergy or what we call a true allergy? Or do we have an IgG response of food sensitivity? And in that food sensitivity box, we have IgG, IgG4, and we have complement like C3D. So there's more components in that food sensitivity box. And some people only activate one component and some people are just lucky enough, they're hitting all of them and they're just activating the whole system. So then it becomes a a really highly allergenic food for them because they're pushing all of those buttons. And So not everyone hears about IgG4, but if you've ever heard about going to see an allergist and getting shots, allergy shots, some people might do that. They might do it because they're allergic to grass, an environmental allergy, or they might do it because they're allergic to eggs, a food allergy. This is supposed to be for an IgE response, a true allergy response. And they may go and get shots for weeks to months or even years For some people it works, for some it doesn't. But the mechanism they're trying to do is what's called desensitization. So trying to get the body to be less sensitive to this response. And what they're doing is, let's say it was, you know, egg, they're giving a little bit of that each time and they're trying to build up this IgG4 response. That's what they're trying to do. And and it's this um, very tight little width (laughs) that they can build it up. If they build it up enough, 
what IgG4 will do is it will help block that immune response to IgE. So it helps block that anaphylactic response or that serious allergy response. But at the same time, if IgG4 gets too high, you have an entire host of problems all on their own from IgG4 that's too high. Just another interesting concept there. And the body does it on its own. You don't have to have allergy shots. You know, if you were allergic to peanuts and your body's trying to lessen that impact, it uses the same mechanism. And actually, I don't know if we're going to get into this or not, but Rupa has an amazing test, my favorite, that looks at all of these markers. So you can see IgE, true food allergies. You can see IgG4. And if the body is blocking its own allergic response, or if that IgG4 is too high, then you see other food sensitivities like IgG and uh, C3D complement. And the reason I mentioned that, a lot of allergy tests out there, I think are inferior. They only do IgG. And I think that's just not sufficient uh, for so many reasons. We can get into if you want, but the C3D, this complement, if that gets higher, just even a little bit, what it does is it increases that IgG response by 1,000 to 10,000 times. So it makes it such a bigger hit. So I love a test that shows all of it. That's amazing. I, I don't think a lot of people know those finer details on complement versus IgG in general. So for those that are listening that don't understand some of the or have a background in some of this, can you break down for us, Dr. Zachary, a little bit more for when it comes to this laboratory testing, is the best thing to test the allergies or sensitivities or both? Sounds like it was both, but can you give us a little bit more background on that on kind of a macro level, I think? Yeah. So a lot of times if you go to your medical allergist, they're only going to test for a true allergy. And that can be helpful to know, but it has its limits. You miss a lot of these food sensitivities. So you might get told you're fine, but you feel miserable. Also, some people are so sensitive, like you get a scratch test done, they react to water. Now, water is supposed to be the control. You're not supposed to be reacting to the water. And at that point, the doc is often saying, well, I just think you're depressed and you need an antidepressant. <laughs> like This must be in your head. So um, those are sort of you know best and worst case scenarios, but it's just a piece of the picture. And then if you go to some practitioners, they may only give you IgG. And again, it's just a piece of the picture. It's one type of a food sensitivity. And the reason I think that's not sufficient is because, first of all, we can impact it. So if you haven't done any work on your gut and your digestion and you get one of those tests, you might think, oh my goodness, I can't eat mushrooms forever. Well, that's not necessarily the case. Have we done any work or not? And so some people, I think, get that test maybe earlier than they need to. And again, just a piece of the picture. So that's why on one page, this is one of my favorite tests, one page, I want to see the true allergy. I want to see how the body's responding. I want to see the different types of food sensitivities. And then when you get that as a patient, you're going to have like red and yellow and green all over it. It's high, it's low, it's moderate. How do you make sense of it? Well, that, that favorite lab I was talking about that you guys have, 
it does this thing where it ranks it. So it actually takes all of that information. So you don't have to go crazy thinking about it, uses an algorithm and ranks it as far as immune responsiveness. So you don't have to like, you know, break out a calculator and get your college kid who's taking calculus and, you know, figure it out. It literally will tell you, this is the number one food your body is freaking out over. Here's the number two food you're freaking out over. And then you want to know that because one of the best things you can do is an elimination diet where you cut it out and give your body a break. And this is to allow for healing. And the other reason I like knowing all of those types of allergens is because, you know, they respond in a different way. So what we call the half-life, you know, when you take a drug, there's a half-life. It's how long it takes that drug to clear your body. Well, it's the same thing with these allergens. When you cut them out, the half-life to clear that negative response, to clear that inflammation is about 21 to 23 days. So that's why most elimination diets are a month. Now I try to encourage my patients to do at least six weeks, you know, let's just go all the way. Some of them are willing to even do months. Great. But if I can get them to do six weeks and really not have that irritant, allow the body to heal, because just think about it. Like, you know, if someone's just sort of knocking at you and poking at you all the time, it's going to bother you. It's going to make you crazy, right? So your body needs to stop being poked at for a little bit. And then during that time, besides just giving the foods and the poking a break, what else can you do? You know, supplements, lifestyle, what else can you do to encourage healing of that digestive tract? I consider that the best way to go about it. And then you can reintroduce those foods. And when you reintroduce those foods, it also helps to know, again, as a patient, it doesn't matter if you understand all this, your practitioner should explain it to you. These four foods, when you introduce them, if there's a negative response, you're going to notice it within a day, right? Because it was that IgE response. And then these six foods, when you reintroduce them, we really need about four days to see if you have a response because it's that delayed hypersensitivity response. So that's how the practitioners use that information from the lab. And then the you know patient experience is, let me cut some things out. Let me get rid of some inflammation. Let me work on a little bit of healing. And then when I reintroduce them, what's my experience as I bring them back in? Very interesting. And I'm sure we all want to know, what is the lab that you really like using? And is there a couple different labs that you've, you've mentioned here today that you like to give to your patients that you'd recommend people get for food sensitivities and allergies? You know, there's a lot of good ones, but the one that I found the most complete that doesn't like add on, a, like you don't have to pay a lot of extra cost to get additional markers or things like that is called the um, Advanced Intestinal Barrier assessment. We always call it ABA, A-I-B-A. And uh, we order that through Rupa Precision Point. It's just, it's, we've used it for years. They just do a really, um, oh, I gave you the leaky gut test. I usually get them together. Allergy 88 is their food sensitivity. So I'm, they're two separate labs, but I often order both. So allergy 88 is the one that will show all the allergy markers and the ABA that I mentioned. That's the one that will show what in your bloodstream 
Like what's getting across? Are you having high histamine? Are you having a lot of lipopolysaccharides, which is a toxin from bacteria? So when I talked about things getting across the gut and in the whole body, that's the test that shows it. So you don't have to get both. We just tend to pair them a lot. But if you want just the food markers, allergy 88, and if you want to add the you know leaky gut, the intestinal barrier, that's the ABA test, advanced intestinal barrier assessment. I just, I love it when I get both. <laughs> so I don't think many people have heard the term or know what the term is and probably sounds a little bit freaky to most, but what is leaky gut? Can you please explain that for everyone? Sure. It, it's a lay term and it used to be, oh my gosh, leaky gut. That doesn't exist. What is that term? Now it's been around for a decade or more. You'll actually see it in research. It's so much smoother than saying, intestinal hyperpermeability, you know, leaky gut makes sense. But that long tube we're talking about in some areas, it's supposed to be a little leaky because that's how your food and nutrients get across. But if it's too leaky, you don't have a good barrier. Things are getting across that aren't necessarily fully digested. They're not broken down as well, or there's other things getting across that shouldn't. And then when it gets in your bloodstream, your body says, oh my goodness, foreign invader, bring in the army. And now you have this immune response. And really that mechanism, that is part of autoimmune conditions. That is happening in autoimmunity. So anyone who's worried about autoimmune issues or has it in the family or um, has received a diagnosis, you know, go backwards, look at the gut, look at your barriers. And one of the ways I just sort of describe this, you know, tube when I'm talking to patients is I say, you know, it's this big, long tube, but a different environment. It's like going through school. You have a kid that they go to kindergarten, elementary, junior high, high school, college, same kid, but as they go through school, the environment's dramatically different at each stage. And that can create a challenge because we might have one problem in our stomach and maybe a different problem in our small intestines and maybe a different issue in our colon. And we can't just isolate it. You know, we can't just say, I'm going to take this and I want you to go to the small intestines but not you. I want you to skip everything and and just hit the colon. You know, we can't divide these guys into separate rooms. So it's helpful to know you want a practitioner who's really well-versed in gut health. So same tube, different environment in each one. And, And sometimes the issues and even the diet needs can be different in different parts of that tube. So gut health is a blast, (laughs) a lot of fun to work with. Um, and really something, you know, just everyone in America, quite honestly, needs to be aware of because of how our, our food supply has changed. It's, it's really the key to a lot of these chronic lifestyle illnesses we face that are, are plaguing our country. And a lot of the symptoms of diabetes and heart disease and cognitive issues, mood issues, behavioral issues, you know, sleep issues that's where you want to really, really be looking at things. So true. I agree. And another analogy I always like to use for leaky gut to help people understand is if you imagine you leaving your screen door open on a hot summer day and there's a bunch of holes in the screen door and bugs just start flying in, it's going to start creating more and more issues. And that is similar to food sensitivities and foods crossing that barrier in the gut. 
creating that immune response and over time, those further food sensitivities and autoimmune disease, as you mentioned. So really important topic, I think. And, and as that relates to other body systems, there's a lot of people that talk about the brain gut and gut brain connection. Can you explain to everyone kind of what that means, how those are related? And how do you think or if you think this uh, has anything to do with food sensitivities? Okay. Yes, absolutely. I love that screen door analogy. So just like we want to have good barriers in our gut, we want to have good barriers in our lungs and in our brain, you know, these other areas in the body. And usually when one is a little damaged, you'll see issues with the others. So there's so many ways food impacts the brain and food sensitivities. A lot happens with what's called the vagus nerve and not like Vegas, where you go to party and eat a buffet, but Vegas, it's the only cranial nerve that leaves the brain. It stands uh, in Latin. It means wandering nerve. So all these other nerves they saw in the brain, here's this one that just left and it went to like the heart and most of the organs and the gut. So they named it Vegas, V-A-G-U-S, wandering nerve. But we've had great science. I used to give this to my patients, by the way, until they told me, this is boring. <laughs> we just like your description. Stop giving us the actual research. But it was really revolutionary when we saw the connection between the brain and the gut via the vagus nerve. And one of the most fascinating parts is about 10% of that communication is from the brain to the gut and 90% from the gut to the brain. So the vagus nerve is like your, your informational superhighway based on what you eat, your food sensitivities, your immune response back up to the brain. Other ways that the um, gut and brain communicate with one another is a lot of these food sensitivities, they contribute to that forest I was talking about, that ecology in your microbiome in your gut. Is it in balance? Is it out of balance? And those little critters in there they communicate to the brain. So they actually make most of your neurotransmitters like serotonin, for example, your feel-good hormone. So they, they make and consume a lot of neurotransmitters. So that's very important brain impact there. They also impact hormones. So hormones are a term for glands that secrete a chemical that travel to other parts of your body. I describe it like Gmail. You know, it's like an instant response. Hormones are fast. Every part of the body is important, but when you have hormone issues, like you feel it, you notice it. And so what you eat and in your gut will also impact how your hormones are signaling. Are they high? Are they low? Are they absent? Are they, you know, misfiring? Are they overproducing? Those types of things. And then um, some of this bacteria that's in your gut I said they release a toxin, what's called a lipopolysaccharide, LPS. And there's always some in our bloodstream, but if it starts getting higher, all right, the body is irritated. Now it's in that immune state. It can absolutely lead to an autoimmune condition, but also those lipopolysaccharides directly influence um, brain health and a lot of other conditions in the body. They um, can make you feel absolutely crummy. They can cause brain fog, cognitive decline. They play a role in Parkinson's, obesity, type 2 diabetes, um, anxiety, depression. Depression is largely a condition of inflammation in the brain. And so 
you know, back to food sensitivities, if you're constantly getting poked and irritated and your body's inflamed, one of the ways it can show up is depression or anxiety. And some people, they're more prone to certain pathways, right? They have a food sensitivity and it shows up as a migraine for them every time. And someone else, it's a rash. And then they start getting eczema. Uh, Someone else, it's acne. Someone else, it's depression. Or they're irritable. They're angry. Someone else, it's weight gain. So, you know, some people have certain pathways based on, you know, who they are, their genetics, maybe previous injuries they've had, other conditions they have. But the big sword in the body causing so many of the problems is, you know, inflammation and these food sensitivities, what's happening with the gut, how it communicates with the brain. Inflammation is is one of the key drivers. Very interesting. And I think a lot of people hear that term inflammation today. And there's a couple of different types of inflammation. Obviously, uh, if you can explain that so that people understand a little bit and how that relates also to, you know, why you need to be retesting for these food sensitivities and how long after you get that initial test should, should you retest again as you understand that. Okay. So inflammation, we, that, I mean, that's part of the Western diet. We are just more inflamed in general. So if you can, you know, find out what your food sensitivities and allergies are, do you have leaky gut or not? And drive down this inflammation. That's why you feel a world different. You know, it's just amazing what happens. So driving down inflammation in general is good. Now, inflammation is also a response like you sprain your ankle. It has a purpose, right? So the inflammatory response as a whole isn't a bad one. It's just that we we overdo it, right? America, go big or go home. And we do it in our bodies too. So there's a couple things that happen with inflammation. You know, one is when inflammation happens, it can actually be what's called, you say your SOL. Uh, It's a space occupying lesion. So even like, let's say a little pimple, you get a pimple like on your forehead, you don't have as much padding as if you got it like on a fleshy part of your skin and a tiny little pimple, you're surprised. Why does it hurt so much? Well, there's not as much space there. Inflammation is occurring and these chemicals are coming in and it's, it's taking up space. It's irritating nerve endings and it hurts. So part of it is a physical structural issue, but then also the chemicals that are are coming in to um, provide that inflammation can be quite noxious and irritating themselves. So then you've got a chemical form of inflammation. And we talked about histamine. Histamine is one of the markers on that leaky gut test that we get all the time. And histamine plays a role in the body. You wouldn't want to not have any histamine. But again, too high a histamine, we're getting allergenic. We have a runny nose. We're getting rashes. Even histamine, the impact on other organs and in the brain, even in the gut, when you eat a food to begin with, and the impact of histamine and the role it plays with stomach acid. So uh, too high of of histamine is a problem. So, you know, that's sort of sort of the basics of inflammation is it's it's a broad sword in the body. Anytime the body is unhappy, it's often using inflammation to shout out, I'm unhappy, I'm unhappy, I'm unhappy. There's like a structural component and a chemical component. And then what we have to do to clean it up in the body is the immune system gets involved. And that's a good mechanism. However, 
you shouldn't be launching your immune system in response to food. And that's the biggest thing I think that the food sensitivity and allergy tests really confirm is, hey, you ate an apple and now we had an immune response. We need to deal with that because you should not have an immune response to an apple. And we want to save our immune system too. You know, it's like our army. We don't need to wear it out. And especially those who have an immunodeficiency or some type of lower or challenged uh, immune issue, if they're constantly launching their, their weaker or lesser or tired out army in response to food, where is it going to be and how is it going to respond when it hits a virus or a bacterial infection or something where it's really supposed to hop into action? So true, especially in today's day and age. It's an important point that Dr. Zachary just made. We don't want to wear out our immune system. So really, really important there. Thank you for mentioning that for everybody listening. So Dr. Brandy, what do you think the future of food sensitivity treatments look like? The actual treatments? You know, we don't have a magic pill or anything that you can just take and not be food sensitive anymore. So that's part of why the true experts in that really are those docs practicing functional medicine because it's a functional condition. There's so many gates to it. You know, think of it like dominoes. We can't pick out one piece. You have to deal with the food going in. You have to deal with digestion. You have to deal with those barriers. And then you have to deal with what's happening in your blood and the immune response. You have to deal with all of it. So yeah, we just don't have something simple to wrap it up. So right now, the best mechanism we have is, you know, get rid of the offending agent, even temporarily, and then try to give the body some rest and heal the structural areas in the body, right? Uh, Improve digestion. As far as in, in making that better down the road, you know, If we can make our food supply better, great. You know, that's a big ask. So I don't think that's going to, I don't think you're going to see a massive change there because what you tend to see with policy is more people needing food. And then that just goes into more processed food and needing the shelf life and having to get it to people that doesn't help produce less allergenic food. So I don't see improvement headed in that direction. We do have you know, new and emerging research on our gut bacteria. So things we can do to improve the gut bacteria will help. And we can do things like prebiotics and probiotics when they're indicated. But yeah, I don't, you know, there's not a surgery for it. You know, there's not, there's just not a magic button in that way. You really have to, you have to hit it at a couple levels, but the testing is key. And that's the one area that has improved dramatically over the last few decades. So it used to be, you know, you only got, you only saw one of these markers and then maybe we introduced this other new marker, but these tests I'm describing where you see all these markers and you can see the impact in the body, you know, that's where you see our best improvement and the newest science. That stuff keeps getting better and better. Completely agreed. The landscape is changing and it's ever-changing now, which is amazing. But I just need to remember that there's so much new literature and research coming out in these areas of 
healthcare. So it's it's very fascinating. This is such a huge topic of food sensitivities, and you've given us some awesome information today. But if you could give one tip to somebody listening right now who's dealing with food sensitivity issues, some of the symptoms you mentioned of whether their skin is itchy or they're having digestive issues or some of those uh, additional things that you mentioned, and feel free to talk about those even further, what would it be? What would that one tip be for somebody? Well, ideally don't go it alone. And I know for some people that's not possible. So I will give you one tip if you have to, but ideally don't go it alone because it takes years of decades to decades of study to really figure this all out. And there's nothing more frustrating than to, you know, go to Dr. Google, get a little piece of an answer. You try it. It doesn't quite work. And it's just, it's a very discouraging experience. So honestly, working with a good practitioner who understands it has good quality tests, retesting, you know, you're going to be well held and carried through it. I think that's the best tip. If someone feels like they need somewhere to start and, you know, they need something today, they either can't get to a practitioner or they have to wait a month before they can get in or something, then usually an elimination diet, like sort of a general one can be safe where you're cutting out the top allergens and giving your body a little bit of rest. Just don't be surprised if you feel somewhat better, but it doesn't do everything because the test is what shows you your customized elimination diet. Whereas if you just Google elimination diet, it's going to say, all right, cut out these top seven allergens. And they pick the most common ones. It can be helpful. It's just not going to be unique to you, right? Someone might cut out eggs and they don't have a problem with eggs, but it was chicken. And who knew? Because most people are fine with chicken. And the only way you know is when you test. So true. And as you said, if you're allergic to water, we got a big deal though. We got (laughs) an issue going on. And it, it happens, but we can help those people. Seriously, like some people have mast cell activation syndrome. You know, there's some really highly allergic, highly sensitive people. It's very discouraging for them, but hope is not lost. There's a lot that can be done. And these foods you cut out, you you know, you're not going to have to cut them all out forever. You you might have some that are true allergens and, and then they're off the, you know, they're off the plate and you feel so good. You don't really care. But a lot of the food sensitivities, you do the work you know, give your body a break and some healing, you can bring them back in later. Dr. Zachary, thank you so much for all your information today that you've given everybody. You know, you had some really, really good insight and points onto the brain gut connection. You talked about leaky gut and you gave us some really, really good tangible and actual act items today for people that are dealing with food sensitivity. So thank you again so much for jumping on here today with us at Rupa Health. And uh, we hope to see you next time. All right. Thank you. My pleasure. The Root Cause Medicine Podcast is brought to you by Rupa Health. To find out more about us and how we are changing the lives of patients and practitioners across the U.S., head to rupahealth.com. And then make sure to search for Root Cause Medicine in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere good podcasts are found. Make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Rupa Health, Thanks for listening.